Obedience is a test of whether you've already come to know Christ, not how you come to know Him. Obedience is the fruit of knowing Him, not the root. Obedience is the result of knowing Jesus, not the cause. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. How do you know if you are a faithful follower of Jesus Christ? What are some of the markers of true Christian obedience? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom is continuing his current series with part 11 of The Believer's New Relationship to Sin. So far, you've discovered three markers of a true Christian. A true Christian faithfully pursues a life of holiness, confesses their sin, and trusts the work of Christ alone as faithful and just to forgive you of sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Today, Tom will look at a fourth marker of true Christian faithful obedience to the commands of Christ. The question remains, how obedient are you? Open your Bible and let's join Tom Pennington now on The Word Unleashed. In the Middle Ages, medical practice was still heavily influenced by the Greek concept of the four humors. The Greeks believed that the bodies consisted of yellow bile, phlegm, black bile, and blood. In the second century AD, the Greek physician Galen had, had revised and sort of updated that theory of medicine. But over a thousand years later, during the Middle Ages, General medical theory still taught that the four humors in the body were controlled and regulated by the four elements that make up earth and the other planets, they taught. Fire, water, earth, and air. And disease, whenever you got sick, that really was just the result of an imbalance of those humors, which they believed that imbalance was often caused by the position even of the moon and the planets. The two most common tools for diagnosing a person's health during the Middle Ages were feeling the pulse, uh, that was helpful, and the other was visually examining the urine of the patient. In fact, during the Middle Ages, a urine flask was often the symbol of a doctor. Now, those of you who are in the medical field can be grateful that we have moved on from that, but Fortunately, today, when you think of a doctor's diagnostic tools, probably the primary one is the ubiquitous stethoscope strung around the doctor's neck. That's how we think about his being able to diagnose what's wrong with us. It represents the reality that in every era, there are important diagnostic tools for determining the physical condition of a patient. Well, in the same way, Scripture teaches that there are certain diagnostic tools that can help us diagnose our true spiritual condition, a, a spiritual stethoscope, if you will. And that's what we're learning. We're learning what those diagnostic tools are that help us truly determine our spiritual condition as we work our way through the Apostle John's first letter. John wrote this letter to encourage true believers, to give assurance to those who are truly Christ's. 
You remember there were those in 1 John 2.19 who, who went out from the church. They followed the false teachers. They believed error, but those who remained still believed the truth. And, and John wanted to assure them that they were in Christ. And throughout this letter, he presents three tests of eternal life. There's the moral test, which is obedience to Jesus Christ and his word. The social test, which is love for God and his people and the doctrinal test, which is faith in the biblical Jesus and the biblical gospel. Now, after the prologue, the first four verses, the rest of this letter presents those three tests in three different movements or cycles. We're studying the first movement. It begins in chapter 1, verse 5, and runs down through chapter 2, verse 27. And the first of the three tests in this movement is our obedience to Jesus Christ and His Word. Let's read it together. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we've not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. By this we know that we've come to know Him if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I've come to know Him, and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Here is the first test of whether or not you're truly a Christian. You can know that you have eternal life that you truly have come to know Jesus Christ because you have a new relationship to sin. Now, this test is based on two fundamental biblical truths, as we've discovered. First of all, in verse 5, God's essential nature of holiness. Verse 5 says, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. And because God is holy... It's impossible to have come to truly know Him, to have a relationship with Him, and your own relationship to sin be unchanged, be just what it was before you claimed to have come to know Him. Now, that introduces us then to a second fundamental biblical truth. Because of who God is, the believer now has a new relationship to sin. That begins in chapter 1, verse 6, and runs down through chapter 2, verse 6. In the rest of this section, John shows us how our relationship to sin reveals whether we are genuine Christians or whether we're false Christians. What's a false Christian? It's someone who says, yep, I'm a Christian. 
I prayed a prayer, I walked an aisle, I put the note in the front of my Bible, my parents told me I was a Christian, but they really aren't a believer at all. That's a false Christian. And the Scripture tells us there are a lot of those connected to the Christian church. So we need to be able to discern what's genuine and what's true, whether we are genuine or whether we're not. Now, beginning in verse 6, there's a recurring pattern. The first thing John does is quote the false claim of a person who's a false Christian. And then he explains how a real Christian thinks or acts. So we've seen that pattern as we've walked through this text so far. Let me just remind you of what we've discovered to this point. First of all, the believer's new relationship to sin is shown by the pattern of his life. Verses 6 and 7. A false Christian habitually lives in sin or walks in the darkness, as John describes it. A true Christian habitually lives in holiness or walks in the light. Secondly, the believer's new relationship to sin is shown by the admission of inherent sinfulness, verses 8 and 9. A false Christian denies that reality. A true Christian admits he's a sinner and confesses those sins, verse 9. Thirdly, we learn that a, the believer's new relationship to sin is shown by the admission of his actual sins. A false Christian denies or downplays his sins. That's verse 10 of chapter 1. A true Christian, on the other hand, admits his sin, hates his sin, pursues holiness, and in the pursuit of holiness continues to trust the work of Christ alone as the only solution for his sins. That's that's the message of chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now, all of that we've seen so far. Today, we learn that the believer's new relationship with sin is also shown by obedience to Christ's commands. Obedience to Christ's commands. Verse 3, down through the first part of verse 5. Look at it again. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. Now, you'll notice that John slightly varies the, the sort of pattern he's followed so far. In verse 3, he begins in a new way. He begins with a general summary of the test. And then in verse 4, you have the false Christian, the one who says, and followed by the false claim. And then in verse 5, you have the real Christian. So he just slightly changes it. So let's, let's look at what he teaches us. First of all, the test summarized. Verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now, you'll notice that in this verse, we have the word no appears twice. I just need to make a note to you that as this letter unfolds, John uses two different Greek words for no throughout this letter. The first Greek word is gnosko. It's used 25 times. In classical Greek, before the times of the New Testament, this word always refers to the knowledge gained by experience or instruction. In other words, you gain it from something outside of yourself, from, from an experience you go through or for someone who teaches you. The other Greek word is oida. It occurs 15 times, and 
In classical Greek, this word always refers to knowledge that you grasp directly or intuitively. In other words, this is not something that comes to you from the outside, but you connect the dots and you come to this conclusion. Now, in the first century, sometimes these words were used with those classical meanings. Other times, they're simply used as synonyms. And as we walk through this letter, we're going to run into both. There are times when John intends us to see a distinction between them. There are other times when he's simply using, it, uh, using them as synonyms. Now, in this passage that we just read, it's the first of these words, gnosko. Now, look again at what he says in verse 3. John says literally, we are knowing. This is present tense. Right now, we are continually knowing that we have come to know him. That's the perfect tense, meaning in the past we came to know God, and now we continue to know him. So we have right now an abiding awareness and knowledge that in the past we came to know him, and we still do. Now the first question we have to answer here is, to whom does the pronoun him refer? To God the Father or God the Son? Well, you remember back in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, it talks about fellowship with the Father. That's led some to conclude that he's talking here about knowing the Father. I don't think so, though, because in the context, the closest person is Jesus Christ, verse 1. The pronouns in verse 2 clearly refer to the Son of God. And down in verse 6, we're going to get to a little bit, the same pronoun refers to Christ. So this passage then is primarily about knowing Jesus Christ and obeying His Word. But of course, to know the Son is to know the Father, so it's, um, you know, it really is implying the very same thing. I want you to start by looking at verse 3 and noticing that John makes it clear that as believers we can have, and the Lord wants us to have, genuine assurance of our salvation. An assurance not based on emotions, that's how a lot of people try to gain assurance, I feel like I'm a Christian, or some past experience, I go back and try to conjure up what happened at that moment I think I came to Christ. That's not where assurance is found. Where does he go for assurance? Assurance here is a certain knowledge you can have right now based on a test you can take today. Notice verse 3 begins, by this. This is the test he has in mind. And by this points to the end of the sentence. Here's the test, if we keep his commandments. Now notice the precision that the Holy Spirit uses here in expressing this test. Knowing Christ comes first keeping His commandments follows. Obedience is a test of whether you've already come to know Christ, not how you come to know Him. Think of obedience as the antibody in your spiritual bloodstream that says you've come to know God. Obedience is the fruit of knowing Him, not the root. Obedience is the result of knowing Jesus, not the cause. So what is the cause? I mean, if all Christians have this antibody running through their spiritual bloodstream, the antibody of obedience, how did you get it? Well, the answer is you got it at the moment of your conversion in what the Scriptures identify as the new birth, John 3. 
at the moment you, you came to Christ, what happened first was God gave you spiritual life. It's regeneration. It's the new birth. And in that new birth, obedience came. Think about how regeneration is described in the prophet Ezekiel. I love this. Ezekiel 36, 27. He says, when talking about this new birth, he says, I will put my spirit within you. That's what happened to you, Christian, at the moment of your conversion. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So when you got the Holy Spirit, you got the Spirit of God whose purpose in your life is to cause you to walk in God's ways in obedience to his word. That's why it, this antibody is in the bloodstream of every Christian, because this is what the Spirit did at the moment of conversion. So the cause of the true believer's obedience is the fact that he was regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You're a new creation, and as part of that new life, that new creation, he is causing you to walk in God's statutes, in his ways. So it's impossible to be a true believer and not have the antibody of obedience. You can't have had the, the good virus of conversion and not have the antibody of obedience. It's impossible. That's the point, by the way, of James 2. It's the description there of the relationship between faith and works. In fact, look at James 2 just for a moment. You remember this passage. James says in verse 14, What use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? That's the key. Someone claims he believes he has faith in Christ, but he has no works. Can that kind of faith, the kind of faith that has no works, save him? Is that a saving faith? You see, James here is not contrasting faith and works for salvation or for justification. He's not saying, well, you need faith and works to be saved, as if works contributes to your salvation. Paul makes it clear in both Galatians and Romans that's impossible. Works contribute nothing. We're saved by faith in the work of Christ. What he's doing here is contrasting a living faith and a dead faith. And I love the example he uses. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. What he's saying is, all of these qualities that are internal can only be shown to be real when they express themselves. What if you say, I have the gift of compassion? I, I just, I am a compassionate, merciful person, and I have the gift of compassion. And somebody comes to you and says, brother, look, I, I don't have what I need to eat. And you say to him, oh, you know, I'm such a compassionate person. I hope somebody will give that to you. Be warmed and be filled. You don't have compassion. Because true compassion inside expresses itself outside. That's the example he's using. He's saying, you can't say, I believe in Jesus, and it doesn't show itself in obedience. That's dead faith. You see, this is a serious warning here for those who claim to be Christians. There are two kinds of faith in Jesus. There is real living faith that saves, and there's deceiving dead faith that damns. 
John Calvin puts it this way, the question with James is not how men attain righteousness before God, but how they prove to others that they are justified. Do they have the antibody of obedience flowing through their spiritual bloodstream? That's the point that John is making in our text. And by the way, it's a point that John the Apostle makes often. Let me show you this. Turn back to his gospel. Look at John, John chapter 8. He quotes our Lord here, John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him. In other words, they had expressed some initial faith toward Christ. He said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. He said, okay, great. You claim to have faith. You've said you believe in me. Well, let me tell you what's going to happen if you really do believe in me. You're going to continue in my word. You're going to obey me. Turn over to, to verse 43 of that same chapter. He says, Jesus says, why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you, you cannot. He uses a Greek word that means you don't have the capacity to truly hear my word in an understanding way, in a life-changing way. Why? Verse 44, because you're still of your father, the devil. And he's a liar, and you love lies, just like he does. Verse 45, because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? And then he answers his question in verse 47. Here's why you don't believe me. He who is of God, that is the person who's been born of God, the person who has God's spirit, that person hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them because you are not of God. Go over to chapter 10, verse 27. Jesus says, my sheep, those who really are my sheep, who belong to me, hear my voice. He's not talking about some ancient version of Jesus calling, some mystical thing. You know, you hear Jesus. He's talking about his word. My sheep hear my voice in my word, and I know them. And guess what they do to my word? They follow it. They follow me. They obey it. Turn to chapter 14 in the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus makes this same point, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Verse 23, Jesus said to them, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words and the words which you hear, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. John comes back to the same theme in the last book he wrote, the last book of our Bible, the book of Revelation. In Revelation 12, verse 17, John describes Christians as, listen to this, all Christians, as those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. In Revelation 14, verse 12, he says, here is the perseverance of the saints, okay? True saints persevere in their faith. Here it is, those who keep the commandments of God and keep their faith in Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. The way John puts it in our text is this way in verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now that's the test summarized. Next we see, as he usually does in, our, in this passage, the text or the test applied. The test applied 
in verse 4 and the first part of verse 5. Now he starts in verse 4 with the false Christian again. This has been his consistent pattern. A false Christian consistently disobeys Jesus' commands. Verse 4, the one who says. Literally, the Greek text says, the one who is saying. In other words, this is a person who is consistently claiming this. What are they claiming? I have come to know him. I know Jesus. This person is claiming to have fellowship with Jesus, claiming to have a relationship with God through his son. The one who is consistently claiming, I have come to know him, verse 4 goes on to say, and does not keep his commandments. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 11 of The Believer's New Relationship to Sin. Join us next time for part 12 as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.